As we prepare for the sermon this morning, which our brother Amos is going to deliver and sharing the truth from Scripture with us, we'll be reading from the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. So if you did not bring a Bible with you or you don't have an NASB 1995, as it's now known, uh, there is one in front of you. So if you just look in the chair in front of you, unless you're on the front row, look under you. Uh, There should be a Bible there that will be in the latter half of the the Bible, page 159. And so as you find uh, verse 1 in the first letter to the Thessalonians, would you please stand in honor of God's word? Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, But also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we come to the section of our worship service where we continue to worship by hearing your word preached. I pray that this morning that as we listen, we will take confidence in the fact that we are loved by you, we are chosen by you. Uh, But because of that election, because of that choice, there's a way that we are now called to live. There's a way that we are now called to put the gospel on display to the entire world. I pray this morning that we would be encouraged, but that we would also be challenged by your word. That when we leave here, it would be with a commitment, a greater commitment, to bear the fruit of those who have been called by your name. We thank you for all that you're going to do this morning and all that you have already done. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, family. Hope y'all doing well this morning. It's great when we run into someone whose talk matches their walk. Even if you don't necessarily agree with this particular person's lifestyle or uh, the things that they're saying, there's still something refreshing about a consistency when it comes to someone's words and their actions. It's not something we're used to seeing nowadays. We often respect and sometimes even admire people like this whose lives accurately reflect what they claim to believe. Unfortunately, like I said, this isn't our experience. All too often, someone's talk doesn't match their walk. We, uh, so much so that we come to expect that. We take a cynical approach when we hear people making lofty claims. We take a we'll wait and see approach. We even experience this collectively as a nation once every four years, don't we? When we vote for the president of these United States, 
No matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on, it's with a heavy sigh and a shrug of the shoulders that we all confess that we expect some amount of deception from our politicians. Not too long ago, there was a uh, a few election cycles ago, a well-known politician was caught in in, in closed doors in front of donors saying things that contradicted what they were saying on the campaign trail. When this came out, the defenders of this politician said, hey, it's politics. And while we don't like to hear that, we know exactly what they're talking about, right? It's something that we have come to expect. It's not only with politics, though. It's not only with politicians. Let's be honest. Let's look at ourselves. There are times where we make certain claims, but we don't necessarily back up those claims that we talk about. There are times that we're also guilty of this. And here's the problem with that. Number one, uh, we don't want to be people who are, who are known for lies. And number two is that even if there is something in those claims that can be called beautiful, even if there's something in those claims that can be called truthful, that beauty and that truth can be damaged to those watching because of the life of the one doing the talking. A beautiful message can be corrupted in the ears of the hearers when their eyes witness a life of contradiction. What does that have to do with Paul's letter to the Thessalonians? As we look at verses 5 through 10 this morning, I know Steve read verses 1 through 10, but this morning we're going to look at verses 5 through 10. What we'll see is a message proclaimed by Paul and a lifestyle that matches. We see the Thessalonians coming to believe this message, and we see the effects of that message worked out in their lives. This is a wonderful message that Paul is proclaiming. There are many messages out there nowadays. There were many messages that the Thessalonians would be able to hear in their day. It seems that uh, on every culture of our, uh, every corner of our culture, there are towers of Babel spouting uh, cures to what ails humanity, giving us options to how we can reach beyond ourselves, how we can cure what is wrong. But this message can be rightly called the message. The message of the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is put on display for the entire world to see. It's a message unlike any other. Green Run, you who are beloved by God, you who this morning are chosen by God, I hope that we're challenged this morning. Challenge to see more of the beautiful gospel put on display in our own lives. I pray that we're also encouraged. Encouraged in hope, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you would carry it on to the completion and to the day of Christ Jesus. Being confident that as we continue this walk, we will see greater measures of the gospel being put on display in our own lives. Look at your Bible. Looking at our text this morning, we'll see the gospel is put on display in three distinct ways. It's put on display in its proclamation. We see it displayed in the preacher. And we also finally see it displayed in the people. If you're taking notes, proclamation, preacher, and people. Last week, we spent most of our time looking at verse 4 where Paul makes a startling claim. He claims that the Thessalonians are his brothers, and he says that they are beloved by God and chosen by God. This alone is amazing. We spent a lot of time last week looking at how amazing these facts were, but Paul also says that he knows these things. This knowledge that he had, thankfully, wasn't based on some special apostolic knowledge. This knowledge was based on what he had seen, what he had perceived about the Thessalonians. He has observed certain things about this church that has caused him to be able to say with confidence that he knows something about them. They are beloved by God. They are chosen by God. Starting in verse 5, he defends this statement. We touched on it a little bit last week, but I want to give it a full treatment this morning. In verse 5, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now, understand something. Paul isn't saying anything negative about the gospel being proclaimed in word. 
He's not downplaying the word in comparison to what he would say later on in the same verse about the word coming in power and in the Holy Spirit. The gospel is always in word. It must come in word. Paul would later uh, write in Romans 10, starting in verse 14. How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. I don't know if Paul, on his way to Thessalonica, as he left Philippi, I don't know if he would have called his feet beautiful, his body still aching, being stripped and beat with rods when he was in Philippi. Acts 16.23 says that a mob had inflicted many blows upon Paul and Silas. Uh, Perhaps this is a point where Paul could have benefited from uh, speaking with some of the great church experts of our day. Paul, when you enter into the city of Thessalonica, poll the inhabitants. See what they want. See what their desires are. See what they need and then tailor your message and your actions to what the culture desires. Years ago, before I was a believer, I don't even remember why I was watching this particular video, but I pulled it up. I found it when I was preparing for this sermon. Uh, There was a traveling preacher talking about how to get people saved, how to get people into your church, how to get people to listen to the gospel. Listen to this this foolishness. This is a quote. (laughs) The problem today is that too many Christians want to talk about the cross and sin. People don't want to hear about that. They need to hear about how they can be blessed and have their needs met. Nobody wants to hear anything about a bloody Savior. Listen, Paul did not limp into Thessalonica and proclaim the gospel. We do not proclaim the gospel because it's what sinful man wants. We proclaim it because it's what sinful man needs. It is essential. They must hear the clear, unadulterated gospel. It must be proclaimed. They must hear it in their ears. They must know what their position is before a holy God. They must know what God has done in Christ Jesus so that man does not have to suffer the wrath to come. This is imperative. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe? Are you convinced that about your unsaved loved ones? Are you convinced that your unsaved co-workers, the greatest need that they have is to be made right with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ? If you would say yes and amen to that, then tell them. Not all of us are are great when it comes to, to speaking and things of that nature, but proclaim the gospel clearly. There's no such thing as being nice enough to where someone will eventually understand the gospel. They need to hear the message clearly. Proclaim the gospel to the people in your life. Paul said that the gospel, it came to the Thessalonians in word, but it also came in power. It came in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Something happened when Paul preached to them. They didn't just hear the sound, they submitted to its power. The word for power here is dunamis. It's often used in reference to miracles, but that's not the point Paul is trying to make here. Uh, When dunamis is used referencing miracles, it's used in the plural form, but here he uses it in the singular. He's not drawing attention to miracles like uh, healing the sick and raising the dead. He's drawing attention to the greatest miracle. He's drawing attention to the miracle that happened when the Holy Spirit convicted those hearers. The gospel coming in the Holy Spirit with full conviction is not just referencing the Thessalonians. Paul isn't just talking about the Thessalonians when he talked about there was power in the preaching and the proclamation of this gospel. He's also saying that when he preached to them, as he was preaching, he realized, he recognized that something was happening. There was a conviction There was a boldness, there was a clarity in his proclamation that he knew he could take no credit for. This was the work of the Holy Spirit. And of course, it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. 
These Thessalonians, they, Paul came into the city and told them, yes, there was this man born of a virgin that you've never met who lives in a backwater place. He was born in Nazareth, and by the way, he was perfect. He was God, and he died on the cross, and what you believe about him, if you put your trust in him, you can be in right standing with God. There isn't enough intelligence in the world to get someone to believe that message apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to drive it into their hearts, and that's what happened in Thessalonica. This was a work of the Holy Spirit. Paul was gifted. We know that he was highly intelligent. He was passionate when he came to his writing. But all the giftedness in the world does nothing unless the Spirit of God unstops ears and opens eyes. As the message was proclaimed, something amazing happened. These idolatrous pagans were convicted of their sin. They were made to see the beauty of our resurrected Savior. Saving faith was birthed in them. Before his eyes, Paul saw sinners becoming saints. He saw former rebels now converted with the righteousness of Christ, covered with the righteousness of Christ. The gospel was put on display as it was proclaimed in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction because he saw what happened to the Thessalonians. Are you amazed about that for yourself this morning? Are you amazed at what happened when you heard the gospel and when you first believed? Is it something that you continue to remember, amazed at what happened? Are you in awe that the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart, has indwelled your heart, and even now, as you're listening, is at work in you crying out, Abba, Father, be in all of this. Not only do we see the gospel proclaimed, the gospel put on display as Paul proclaimed it to these Thessalonians, this message was put on display in the life of the actual preacher, in the life of Paul himself. Look what he writes. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Look at just as you know. This word, once again, it reminds us of the same word that Paul used in verse 4. He uses the same word here. This knowing is a knowledge based on what is seen, perceived, or observed, except Last time he was talking about what he observed about them. Now he's talking about what they observed about him. He says, you know what men we prove to be among you. There was no shortage of traveling preachers in those days. Traveling teachers, philosophers, stoics, false teachers of every kind. The Thessalonians would have been used to hearing folks in the marketplace spouting their different religions and their different viewpoints. Paul and his companions, they wouldn't have stood out at first. But the Thessalonians watched them. They watched how they lived, and it became evident that there was something different about these men. They had never seen men who lived like this. The walk matched the talk. There was consistency in the Christ whom Paul preached and the Christianity that he practiced. Evidence pointing to the truth of the transformative power of the gospel is seen in the life of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It is impossible, once that work is done on the inside, it is impossible for that work that has been done on the inside to stay on the inside. The internal realities were externally evident. Now, Paul as we should be, he was fully aware that people would be watching the way he lived. We need to be aware of that too, right? We need to be mindful that people are looking at us and seeing the way we live. He, could, he took care to live in such a way that would honor God. He took care to live in such a way that would honor God both in his word and in his deeds. He wasn't a man who would cause the name of God to be blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of the way he lived. He wasn't building up the proclamation of the gospel with one hand, but then tearing it down with the way that he chose to live in front of these people. He also understood that the life that he lived was for the sake of others. 
you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. Why? Uh, for your sake. Are we saying that about ourselves this morning? Do we realize the beauty of living for the sake of others? Are we putting the gospel on display, mindful of how it is presented to a dying world? Does our walk match our talk? Are these inward truths being seen in your life? Is it evident? Do you live your life understanding that you're being watched? Your children, they're watching you. They may not act like it, but they're watching you. They're listening to you. They hear the message you proclaim, and they're watching to see if your life matches that message. Your coworker. They're, they're, your coworkers, they're taking notes. They're paying attention to how you live. The Thessalonians, they heard this message. They heard it proclaimed and came to the conclusion that it had power because of how it transformed the life of the preacher. I'm not saying that Paul's life caused them to be saved. What I'm saying is that Paul came preaching the gospel, making certain claims. Inherent in those claims is the idea that you are lost in sin, that you are a slave to sin, that you are a rebel to God, that you need to be made into a new creature. As they looked at the life of Paul, those things that he proclaimed, they saw in his life, he sure is looking like a new creature, right? He sure is looking like someone who has been set free from sin. He has made us aware of the sin in our lives. We see the sin in our lives, but now we see the way he is living. There must be something to this message. I need to examine this power. That's what they saw. They saw how it transformed his life. They saw how he was living. My desire for us is that that would be all of our testimonies. My prayers that God would get all the, give all of us a boldness to proclaim the gospel and that unbelievers will come to saving faith, being convinced by the word, but that they would see the evidence of its power in your life. Even if they don't necessarily understand the gospel in full, when it is proclaimed to them, my desire is that they think of people from Green Run Baptist Church. Man, that sounds familiar. I know someone like that. Let us put the gospel on display in our own lives. And just to be clear, Scripture doesn't recognize, uh, Scripture doesn't separate the two. Scripture doesn't recognize a conversion that only happens on the inside. If you have come to saving faith, then you will necessarily bear fruit. It's not optional. If you are saved, you will bear fruit. Be careful that we don't get it backwards. We don't put the cart before the horse. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, for by, the grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So these works, they don't save us. However, if you have truly been converted, then Ephesians 2.10 is about us. You are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. We enter into the narrow gate, but we can't forget that there's a narrow way that must now be walked. Scripture doesn't separate the two. There's no such thing as someone who is Christian on the inside only without showing the examples of the evidence of what God has done in them. The gospel, we saw it put on display in Paul's bold proclamation in word and in power. The evidence for its truth was seen in the life of the preacher. It was seen in the life of Paul and his companions. And then in verse 6, we see the gospel put on display in the lives of the people who heard. Look at what Paul says. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, when we think of this word imitators, we got to do some defining here because it's quite possible for someone to imitate someone or mimic someone in word and action only without there being any conviction. They don't necessarily really believe what they're doing. They're just playing a game of copy. 
it's sort of like a, we, this word for imitation is the same word that we use for mime, but the, the idea is, it goes deeper than that. It's not just they saw what Paul was doing and did some uh, uh, imitation without any heart conviction. The imitation that Paul is talking about here started on the inside and began to manifest itself outwardly. He told them that they became imitators. They didn't start that way, but in a moment they became imitators. And there's something interesting about the way Paul writes this here. This inward imitation, this inward becoming isn't something that is progressive. God doesn't slowly remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. There's never a time where a quarter of your heart is flesh and then the rest of it is stone. This inward imitation uh, is not progressive. It's not happening. Uh, it's, it's happening over. It's not happening, excuse me, over time. It was definite. It was immediate. They literally at a moment, this is what Paul is saying, at a moment, at the moment of their conversion, they became imitators of Paul. Now, sometimes, not sometimes, we have a work of sanctification. It takes time as, as that inward manifestation begins to manifest itself outwardly. But when God saves, he saves completely. You know, there's no such thing as someone who's partially saved. Jesus doesn't attempt to save someone and says, oh, I'll, I'll be back later and finish that. No, when he saves, he saves completely. There's no need for purgatory or anything like that. Notice something about how he words this here. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you became imitators of us and the Lord. There's an extra preposition here. Look at it. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, this is intentional what he's doing, and the English translators, they try their best to get it across uh, why Paul adds this extra uh, preposition here. But uh, Paul is trying to put as much distance between himself, along with his other co-laborers, and the Lord Jesus Christ. If he had said, you became imitators of us and the Lord, it would have been like uh, they were putting themselves on the same level as Jesus Christ. That's not what he wants to do here. He's making sure we understand the separation. He's drawing a distinction. Yes, they became imitators of Paul. Yes, they became imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of these is not like the other. There's a separation between the two. They heard the gospel. They were babes in the faith. They started out imitating Paul, but then what happened? They went beyond. You see that in the text. Paul said, you were imitating us, but now you are with us seeking to imitate Jesus. You had your eyes on us. You were looking at us. You were focused on us. But then you noticed that we were looking at something else. Or rather, you noticed that we were looking at someone else. And you put your attention on what our eyes were on, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you begin to follow him. Now, we need to ask ourselves a question here. How is it possible for Paul and the Thessalonians... How is it possible for any of us here to be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ in a practical sense? It's all well and good for me to stand up here and say, be imitators of Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? Where can we go? How can we find examples of how he lived? Paul didn't walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry, and we certainly didn't walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry. But we have a record of Jesus. In the Gospels, we have a, re have a record of this historical man, this perfect man. We have a record of how he lived. We can see what he looked like morally. We can see how he acted. We can see what he did. I want to encourage you this morning, give yourself to this. Give yourself to a life of imitating this perfect one. Wrestle with the scripture seeking to daily be conformed to the image of the one who perfectly talked the talk and walked the walk. There was, a never, there was never a moment in the life of Jesus where he contradicted the message that he came to bring. He lived it out perfectly. 
Now, Paul, he didn't mind that people were imitating him. As long as they imitated him, insofar as uh, he imitated the Lord Jesus Christ, he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And that's something, as we meet new believers, as we share the gospel, as we sharpen one another, as we walk together in the faith, there are certain aspects of your life where you are farther, farther along in your sanctification than others. You can say, follow me here, but only as I follow Christ, constantly pointing people to the one that we all should be following, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thessalonians, they imitated Paul. They, they, they imitated him as he imitated Christ. And then look what Paul writes next. Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting. You would think that he would reverse the order that he writes this. It would make more sense to say uh, that they received the word and then became imitators. That's the chronological order. You received the word, you became imitators of us, but he flips it in the way he words it uh, to draw attention. And this is very clear uh, if you look at it in the Greek. He makes it clear that all imitation flows out of receiving the word. The word here is speaking about the gospel. He's saying, I know you received the gospel because you became imitators. It sounds a lot different from how salvation is viewed today in modern evangelicalism, doesn't it? How do you know you're a Christian? I prayed a prayer one time. I got a certificate. My name is written in the back of this Bible. I'm not saying that if you pray the prayer one time that you're not a believer. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that your, your hope and your trust should not be in that moment that you prayed that prayer. Don't be confident in the fact that you prayed that prayer one time. Examine your life. See if you're bearing fruit. If there was true conversion, then after confession, you must carry on. That's what we can look at. We can look at the fruit that we're bearing in our lives. This puts an end to surface-level, superficial Christianity. Paul, he told the Thessalonians that he knew they were Christians because they joined him, and they began to walk on that narrow way. He didn't point to the time where he preached the gospel, and they said they believed. He encouraged them with what he saw in their lives after they made the confession of faith. They received the word in much tribulation. Do you remember uh, when our brother Mark preached the first sermon when we were looking and we started looking at this letter? You remember how this church was founded? Paul preached the gospel. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. We read about it in Acts 17. In Acts 17 verse 4, it said that a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women became believers. Some of the Jews, they became jealous. They formed a mob and they attacked the house of one of the believers, a man named Jason. They drug him before the authorities. They accused him of being an enemy of the state. And Jason and some of the other believers, they had to pay a bond before they could be set free. After that, Paul and Silas, they had to get out of town. They had to leave that night. Uh, Paul, he was only able to preach. It says that he preached in the synagogue for three consecutive Sabbaths, and then he had to leave rather quickly. Members of this mob were so angry that they followed Paul and Silas to Berea and began stirring up the crowds there. So going back home, you know that they were uh, enraged seeing the members of the way, seeing these believers, seeing these Christians continue to pro proclaim this message. They received the word. It was much tribulation. This was more than just a mild discomfort. This was severe suffering for the sake of the gospel. They faced affliction for their declaration that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. They received the gospel in the midst of riots and severe persecution. Family and friends and government officials telling them that there would be consequences if they continued to believe, if they did not recant. Property is being taken away. They're being disowned by families. They're accused of being traitors. 
Paul wasn't exaggerating when he said that they received the word in much tribulation. However, he doesn't stop there. They received the word in much tribulation. They were hated for their faith, but the word was also received with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now that's baffling. We don't usually don't see joy associated with intense suffering. They received it with the they received the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit. How can they have joy in the midst of these trials, trials like that? We can ask how, but asking how I think is the wrong question. We need to ask about who. Who makes this possible? It's the joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice he doesn't say joy in the Holy Spirit. He says a joy of the Holy Spirit. This is a joy coming from the Holy Spirit. The origins for their joy isn't found in them. They're not looking to themselves to stir up joy in the midst of these circumstances. And this goes beyond seeing uh, the silver lining in the cloud or looking on the bright side of things. This is a legitimate joy welling up from the inside of them that comes from the Holy Spirit that is indwelling them. One theologian, he called this the Christian paradox, this phenomenal thing that we see. He said, how can one be like a lamb led to the slaughter, yet at the same time be filled with joy? We see this in scripture, all, we see this all throughout scripture. We also see it all throughout Christian history. We can start with the captain of our salvation, Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, the excruciating pain of the cross. He did that for the joy set before him. The apostles in Acts 5.41, who after being flogged, went away rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer the shame for his name. They were beaten And they walked away rejoicing. Imagine if you're someone in the street, you knew what happened to these apostles. You see them walk out, backs bleeding, wincing from the pain, but they're rejoicing. Either these men are insane or there is something that is true about this message that they are proclaiming. What power is this that can cause people to rejoice in the midst of such suffering? Hugh Latimer, who was burnt at the stake in 1555 with Nicholas Ridley, is quoted as saying, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. This gospel, this message is message of salvation that God offers to sinners, that God offers to his enemies. This gospel was put on display in the lives of the Thessalonians by how they became imitators of Paul and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was seen in the way that they endured suffering by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the midst midst of these trials, it was evident that they had a supernatural joy that people wouldn't be able to explain. These Thessalonians, they endured severe persecution. In our day and age, in our country, we may not endure the persecution like that, but all of us are, uh, at one time in our lives, will go through the dark night of the soul, where we are enduring difficult trials and tribulations, where we are struggling where our heart, we feel like our hearts are being broken. It is at that time, trust me, people are watching. Are you looking to have joy that its origin is you, or are you looking to have joy in the Holy Spirit? This doesn't necessarily, this doesn't mean at all that they enjoyed getting beat. We don't enjoy the hardships we go through, but we see them in light of what has been done for us. We see them in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. As we continue this morning looking at this young church, we see the effects of their faith 
then became famous. Look at verses 7 through 9. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of, re- of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. People would come to Thessalonica and, and people who lived in the area as they traveled. Remember, this was a seaport town. As they traveled, uh, they testified about what they witnessed in the lives of these believers. If you look at on the map Macedonia and Achaia, uh, this is the uh, northern and the southernmost part uh, of the Greek world. He's not saying that uh, the gospel went everywhere, but he's saying that it was extensive uh, in its reach beyond their city borders. People testified to what these believers were doing. Suffering so much, yet filled with joy. I'm sure some of the uh, things that people were talking about, about these believers, it was done in insult. Uh, There's this crazy sect of folks over in Thessalonica. They're getting beat. They're getting their property taken. But they believe that this guy that died, they say he rose again and and that he's seated on the right hand of God and that we need to put our trust in him. I'm sure there was some insult going on. But nonetheless, they were testifying to what these believers were doing, how they were living their lives. These believers who once imitated Paul have now become an example to other believers. This word for example here means to mark by striking. It's also a word that is used when it talks about a seal on an envelope or something in wax. It's a mark by striking. They made a mark on other believers because of how they lived. An ongoing mark. They were an example to other believers. Those who were once being, those who once imitated Paul are now the ones that people are imitating. The gospel is sounding forth from them and being known in places far outside their reach and their influence. And I find it funny. I find it interesting that the mob who attacked this church in the beginning, remember they accused Paul and his co-laborers of upsetting the world. Come to find out their violent attempts at stopping the message only caused it to spread further and shine brighter. And their attempts from stopping these men from upsetting the world, the gospel is now spreading to the world. Paul says, That their faith is being talked about so much that he doesn't even have to say anything. That before he can bring up what's going on in Thessalonica, others are reporting to him about what is happening. How they have turned to God away from idols. This word for reporting, it, 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 it means that this was an ongoing thing. This wasn't something that once or twice somebody came to him and said, have you heard about what's going on in Thessalonica? This means that this was an ongoing thing. People were constantly coming to Paul. Hey, have you heard about Thessalonica? He was constantly hearing it about it in places that he would arrive as he was preaching. How they turned to God, how they turned away from idols. I want to say something here about the power of the gospel. The people of Thessalonica, they weren't sitting around unhappy with the idols that they were worshiping. They weren't sitting around looking for something new. They were were happy in their worship of idols and in the way they lived their lives. But something happened when they heard about this man, this man Jesus. They heard about Jesus. They recognized their sin And they threw away their idols. The personal work of Jesus Christ. It it was by the spirit they were ripped away from their idols. And their eyes were placed on the one who was worthy of worship. They turned away from these idols and put their eyes on God. The way they were living affected Paul's ministry. People would hear about what was going on in Thessalonica. 
Paul would come preaching the same message and people would look at Paul and say there must be power in that message because we know what happened where you preached it before. They turned to him from idols and to serve a living and a true God and to wait. Look at how it, look at how it finishes in verse 10. And to wait, present tense, for his son, God's only begotten son from heaven, the one who is right now currently ruling and reigning, crowned with glory and honor and power and praise. This son from heaven, he came and he lived a perfect life, but he died the death of a vile criminal, the death that we deserve to die, paying the price for all who would put their trust in him. He was raised from the dead. This Jesus is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. He snatches us away from the wrath to come. And when you hear scripture, if you're hearing your unbeliever this morning, you can hear about wrath and think it's this uncontrolled, wild, spur of the moment thing. But the wrath of God isn't wild and uncontrollable. It's being stored up. For the day of wrath and one day it will be released on you if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ. This is a righteous wrath. This is not an uncontrolled wrath spurred on by wild emotions. It's a perfect righteous wrath and no one who stands before God guilty of being a rebel against him will look at him and say, what have you done? I do not deserve this. This morning, do not leave here without knowing what it means to be a believer. And if you walk out of here uh, after hearing such a glorious gospel, that's a decision. If a wait and see mentality is a decision to reject the gospel this morning. What a wonderful gospel we have. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful hope we have. We read about that hope in verse 3, the steadfastness of hope. This is an unconquerable hope that marks the believer based on the promises of a God who cannot lie. This drawing our attention to the second coming that Paul does in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who res rescues us from the wrath to come. He draws our attention to the second coming, reminding us of the steadfast hope that marks all of our lives as believers. This is something that Paul will continue to do. It's a theme that runs throughout this entire book. This entire letter, we see it over and over again. He's drawing the saints, he's drawing their attention to what will ultimately be done for us in the personal work of Jesus Christ, the consummation of all things. We see it at the end of each chapter. We just read chapter 1, verse 10. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. At the end of each chapter. Chapter 3, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Finally, look at chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This encouragement that he continues to give to the Thessalonians is something that we can remember today. And like I said, this is not a, 
I'm just holding on to the Jesus comes. In the midst of our lives right now, in the midst of our trials and tribulation, we can have real joy. But at the same time, we can rejoice in what is to come for us. At the consummation of all things, when we will stand before him blameless, without spot and wrinkle, when we will see him with unveiled face, when we can see, when we can behold the one who loves us, our beloved Savior, our Lord and Jesus Christ, this is something that we can look forward to. This is reason for hope for us. This is something that Paul tells us to encourage one another with. The title of this sermon this morning was The Gospel on Display. But it could have also been called Evidence of Conversion. My prayer for you as individuals, what I long for this morning for you and for this local body, is that the gospel will be put on display clearly in our lives. That people would look at Green Run Baptist Church and say, those people believe the gospel. I can see it as evident in the way they live their lives, in the way they love one another well, in the way they love God, in the way they love people. My prayer is that we would live a life with the evidence of this conversion and that we would be able to, uh, that others would look at us and imitate us as we imitate Christ. As we remember what has been done for us in Jesus. I love the song that we sung this morning, the gospel song, Holy God and love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin By his death, I live again. As you walk out this morning, during this week, reflect on that about yourselves. By his spirit, let it be driven home to your own hearts. Husbands, preach this to your wives. Wives, encourage your husbands with this. Make it clear to your children. Speak to your co-workers and your unsaved loved ones. But most importantly, let it be reflected in the way that you live your life. Be intentional about living a life that puts the gospel on display. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning, there was so much in this this beautiful text as we continue to look at the church in Thessalonica. We know, Father God, that they weren't a perfect church. They weren't filled with perfect people and just like us. But, Father, they lived a life that caused the gospel to go beyond what they would have thought was their reach. Father, I pray for that for us. I desire that for us this morning. That we also would be a people who puts the gospel on display, that the evidence of conversion would be clear in our lives. That Christ may be exalted, that he may be glorified. We thank you for all that you've done. I pray that the lessons we learned this morning will stay with us. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus.